Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Don't you go bragging about how much you've seen, you haven't seen a thing. Don't even waste my time with... Alright, so we've officially left class conditioning, and we're going to start talking about operator instrumental conditioning. Um, probably generally the stuff's going to be a little easier to understand than the, the uh, classical stuff. That's, that's usually, I think, the experienced students have, and I think that's probably partially why I don't find it as interesting. Um, but whatever. That guy there, that's uh, E.L. Thorndike. Uh, if you're taking history of psych, you might have heard of Thorndike. We've talked about Thorndike. Um, Thorndike, later in his career, got really well known for doing educational psychology, but he started out doing learning. And in fact, the, the thing he was interested in, the thing he was interested in was Animal intelligence. And in fact, the question you wanted to ask was, what, what animal was smarter? Which, if you've heard me talk about this stuff before, it's kind of a silly question, but it was 1902. So maybe he wasn't... We can forgive him. So what Thorndike had were called puzzle boxes. So it was a box about that size, and you put a cat in it, and cats don't like being in boxes. The other thing is, cats when they're hungry, want to eat. So there was food outside the box, the cat could sort of smell, excuse me. And it had to get out, but it's locked in. Now it's not just mean, right? You didn't just lock it and leave. Uh, there, there is a way to trigger the door to open. And there'd be various different, what we would call today, manipulanda. So you would have Perhaps a treadle, like a little uh, lever to, or a pedal almost, like a fairy that the, the cat can step on, and a chain it could pull, and uh, a button it could press. And eventually, one of those things, depending on the cat, depending on the box, was hooked up to the door. One of those was hooked up to the door. Okay. Now, What's going to happen when you throw a cat into a box? If you ever had a cat, they get pretty excited and they start running around like idiots. Right? And if you don't, take your cat and put it in the box. See what happens. This is what will happen. You know, so they get all excited and they run around. But eventually, just through dumb luck, they're going to hit the thing that opens the door. They open the door. They get out. They get their food. And you put them back in. Yeah, the next time, they're a little bit quicker. And the time after that, they're a little bit quicker. And eventually, after a few trials like this, you put them in and they just bang, and they're out. They've learned how to get out of the box. So, it's actually pretty neat stuff, because it's the first really systematic investigation of what we eventually call operant conditioning. Um, Thorndike developed what he called the law of effect. And basically what it says is that when you start out with a bunch of, you have a, you have a bunch of stimuli and a bunch of possible responses. Okay? So it's stimulus response kind of idea. And initially all responses are equally likely. All responses are equally likely. Now you could just list response one up to response n or whatever. 
you know, there's only so many possible responses, but all responses are equally likely at the beginning. But then eventually, because of the effect the response has, certain responses become more likely, and therefore other responses become less likely. Getting a connection then between a stimulus, say the little, uh, let's, let's say it's a little sort of uh, chain hanging there, and the animal has to do is grab it and just pull. That becomes the most likely response. It's actually pretty cool. It's pretty cool for a guy doing this the turn of the last, uh, of this, of the, not the last century, the one before. So pretty impressive for the early 1900s. You understand the idea then? It's annoying research because you have to, every time the cat's done, you take it out, put it back in the box, close the box up. It's painstaking. <laughs> it's, uh, you know... How do you think the cat feels? <laughs> That's the cat. I don't really care. But uh, the cat got fed. I mean, it wasn't like the cat wasn't getting fed. The cat, the cat gets something to do. Uh, gets to play. I don't think, like I said, at the beginning, I don't think they like it very much. But later on, it's not really that difficult. It's, but it, it goes to show, though, that like with a lot of this kind of stuff, especially the early stuff, the data collection is just exceedingly boring. I mean, like, and typically data collections like that, and some of you guys are doing your thesis this year, and you'll find that, that collecting data is just, it's neat the first day, and it's neat the day you finish, because you know you don't have to collect any more data. The time in the middle is just hours and hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror that you've screwed something up. You know, it's, uh, what is Principal Skinner said in The Simpsons, right? Science has all the excitement of sitting still, writing down numbers, and paying attention. Uh, it, it's, it, it can be quite boring. So the neat thing is, though, he, he, he persisted with this and came up with this law of effect, which really had a big influence on how a lot of people thought about psychology. A lot of people thought about learning. Um, a little later on, Guthrie and Horton took a look at the what's actually happening. They made puzzle boxes that were clear. They were glass. I don't think they were plastic. I'm pretty sure they were glass, which is cool. Um, and they filmed it. Okay. And then they looked at the sequence of behaviors that the animal has. See, because Thorndike says, with a lot of fact, that it's the, 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 the behavior that leads to, the, to getting out and getting the food is the one that becomes more likely. Guthrie and Horton film this, and they say, it's actually not true. What happens is the order that they do behaviors in stays the same. So if, if, if the first time that the cat does this, the first thing it does is it, I don't know, what's something cats do? Spin around looking at it, you know, doing that. And then arching its back, because cats do that for reasons that escape me. And then doing that stretchy thing that cats do. And then... Meowing a couple of times. And then doing it, then they do that in that order. They do it in that order. They still make exactly the same terminal behavior. The terminal behavior, the one that gets them out, let's say it's to pull on the little chain. You know, cats can do that. They can grab something between their little toes or whatever on their front paws. They grab a little chain and pull. But if they were doing it with their right front leg, they always do with their right, right front leg. So it always works the same way. So part of what 
Thorne said was true. The final behavior is does become more likely, and it, but it's stereotyped, and the behaviors in the middle, what eventually got to be learned to be called superstitious behaviors. Also become more likely. Now, we can classify superstitious behaviors, and this is how, like Guthrie and Horton, and later uh, people like even B.F. Skinner, classify some of these. The interim behaviors, that's the behavior between the start and the final, the terminal behavior. The terminal behavior is going to be the one that actually operates the box and gets the animal out. And then there are things called adjunctive behaviors. Adjunctive behaviors are things that almost pass the time, and they tend to be things like grooming, right? displays, things like that. That's why I mentioned arching your back or the way the cats will stretch out. But then eventually they get to the terminal behavior. So they're not actually random, and you, people used to think they were random until Guthrie and Horton came along and, and filmed it. They thought they were just doing random behaviors. Um, superstitious makes it sound like, well, those things have no effect, but how, does the, how is the animal to actually know that? Okay. As far as the animal learns, doing those behaviors in that order does actually lead to you getting out of the box. So they're not actually superstitious per se. But it does give you an idea of where superstitions might come from. Right? Anybody here have something lucky they bring the tests? Right? Really? You pencils? Yeah, but that's that little different pencils all the time. Somebody has, you got somebody, what do you, what do you bring? Well, I just always wear the same necklace every day. There you go. I used to wear the same shirt whenever I'd give a talk at a conference and my PhD loaded. And then I left it in St. Louis in a hotel. Mistakenly. I mean, it would be way out of style anyway, but it's from 1992. <laughs> <laughs> I like these. I like these. It's a really nice shirt, actually. Um, not from 1938. Well, no, it's a, it's a white uh, button-up uh, collarless shirt. It was a very early 90s look. Okay. Yeah. Well, with my motorcycle boots. Um... You know that that necklace doesn't help you. I knew your shirt didn't help me give better talks. But what had happened in the past is that I had worn that shirt because I had very few shirts that I still have very few shirts with buttons on them. So when you're giving a talk at a conference, uh, you used, when I was a graduate student, early days especially, I would think, well, you should look nice. Then I realized that the only people that were dressed up at conferences were young graduate students and undergraduates. Senior graduate students, postdocs, and faculty members dress like this at conferences. Don't let anybody tell you different. That's how it works. I once gave a talk in Florida, and a guy chairing the session I was in was wearing shorts, a tank top, and flip-flops because he had just come from the beach. <laughs> so, I mean, you can always tell when you're at a conference who they, you can spot the people that have never been to a conference before because they get up and give their talk, and they look, they're impeccably dressed, and you're sitting there going, well... I got a mustard stain in my T-shirt because <laughs> he just came from grabbing a hot dog between sessions or something, right? So, yeah, you can always spot them. But I, 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 I knew my shirt didn't help me, but I wore it because the first time that I give a really good talk—well, not the first time I tend to give pretty good talks—I um, wore that shirt. You probably did well wearing your necklace. Like, well, I keep wearing a necklace. You know it doesn't help you. Yeah, of course. Like logically. I've seen students line up 
little action figures that are their desks uh, when they're writing a test. Fine, whatever works for you. As long as you have written answers on the bottom of the action, action figures, I'm fine. <laughs> right. I've seen people, um, how many times do you see, see professional athletes are horrible for this oh, kind yes. of thing? Right? Now, there's a lore that goes with it. You know, there are certain things, like, for example, when a base, baseball players, when they're running onto the field, you never step on the foul lines. You just, it's just something you don't do. So those are different. Those are like folklore. But individual players will have their own superstitions. Right? If you read Ken Dryden's book, The Game, which is just about hockey, he talks about how they always like, don't change the luck, don't change the luck. So you'd wear the same underwear all the time when you're on a winning streak. I don't know. I don't want to know that. I don't want to know. I don't want to go there. No, I don't want to know. But it's interesting because, in fact, it does explain some superstitious behavior that we have because even though it shows you the power of basically reinforcement, because even though you know, I knew my shirt didn't help me, you know your necklace doesn't help you. And I think probably if you asked hockey players who, uh, let's say they... Now, the, again, the playoff beard thing is not a good one because everybody does that now. But there are players that, 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 that take their stick a certain way. Phil Esposito used to wear a dicky. A lot of players do that too, yeah. Well, yeah, but he, he started wearing it when he, he wore it once and scored three goals. Yeah, see? Against. There you go. That's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. Right? Um, or Wayne Gretzky used to stuff, shove half his sweater into his back right. because he... Because tended to play two levels up because he was so good and his shirts were always too big. When he got to the NHL, it didn't, or in junior, it didn't matter because his shirts were the right size, but he still did that. Right? And if you asked him, I'm sure he would tell you that it had no effect on his game except that he still do it. Right? And I have stupid... I, I listened to the same song on my Walkman. Uh-huh. Showing you how old I am. Before every test I wrote as an undergraduate and a graduate student and before my PhD oral. By then it was a, a CD compact, like a CD player. But it was the same song every single time. And I knew it wasn't helping me. But I did it. It was part of a ritual that I had. Right? And I have listened to that before giving talks, even still to this day. Which is the closest thing I have now to doing a test. So, and I'm a pretty rational person. I pride myself on that. But I also have these superstitions because of just the reinforcement history that's happened. It's kind of interesting. So it isn't, now it isn't exactly superstitious because in fact, from the animal's perspective, like I said, it doesn't know that first it's supposed to lick its ass and then do this. Like, you know, it's been reinforced with that set of behaviors. And it's not random either. And they used they look random. I had a when I had when I was training birds uh, when I was in grad school and I, I had a let me try this sort of setup that I had. You know, computer touchscreen kinda where is it? Where the hell's my marker gone? Oh it's my pocket. Um so I had a <coughs> so from the side there's a touch touch screen frame and there's a monitor that went back with that far because it was huge because it was nineteen ninety one. Um, it's about the right size actually. And then a cage attached, and then there's a feeder in the floor here. And there's a perch here that the bird can perch on, and a perch here, and a perch in the middle. But the stimulus would show up on the screen, 
Okay, the bird has to peck at it, and then it has to then the stimuli go it goes dark. The bird's task is to remember what mm. the stimulus was. Okay, come back after a certain interval and peck at it and get the food. There's obviously a problem here. The problem is if uh, the bird could learn very easily and just stand there and wait. And then it's not using memory, it's using an interesting strategy, but <laughs> memory. So what I have to do is get him to fly back to this perch. So that's a pretty hard thing to do. It's actually not that bad, because what, what I did is I put, um, went to Radio Shack and bought a couple of photo beams, a little photo cell. The bird had to fly back and stand on the perch, and I wrote software that would detect there's all kinds of things I used to be able to do that, well, I can still write that software, except I would have to write it on a computer from 1991. Um, <laughs> the bird would fly back, land on this perch, the photo beam would be broken, it would detect it, the software would say, okay, now start the timer. And then after five seconds, the stimuli show back up. Really pretty basic. It's not, the programming itself isn't that impressive. Okay. So the birds actually learn this pretty quickly, because they, again, when they just stand here and wait, nothing happens, then they start flying around, Birds will, little songbirds will perch. You give them perches, that's what they'll do. And it lands on the perch, and then, you know, fair enough, everything starts happening. So I had black-capped chickadees and dark-eyed juncos, and all the chickadees learned it, and three of my four juncos. One of my juncos never learned this task. Well, he actually learned. His name was Norm. All my, chi all my chickadees were named Montreal Canadiens players, and all my uh, juncos uh, were named after characters on Cheers. So Norm would fly back to the back of the cage. And instead of perching, he would jump, he'd do like a high jump through the thing. He'd go, and jump through it. He never learned to perch on it. He broke the photo beam though, so it worked. It was funny watching, because I had a video camera set up so I could watch. And I remember my supervisor came down, she said, what's that bird doing? I said, well, he's kind of stupid, never learned he could just perch. It's the strangest songbird I've ever seen. But it worked for him. He ran 600, 800 trials doing that. Would you call that superstitious behavior? Well, every other bird learned what you would expect, which is it's a perch. You can perch on it. <laughs> this one never did, but it worked out just fine. So it's kind of like that. And again, for that junko, that worked. That's what's being reinforced for. So it's not really superstitious behavior. It worked. It's just very strange behavior. All right. So how do you get an animal? For example, how did I get the? How did I teach them to eat out of this feeder? In the bottom of the the base of the. Uh, oh, again, what did I do with my In the base of oh, there it is of this of this thing here. On, on, so this is not a side view. This is made out of metal. Hole here. Yeah. And you can fill this up with, what I filled it up with was grated sunflower seeds. Like a ground up, not ground up to the point where they become sunflower seed butter, which is delicious, by the way, uh, but just powdered sunflower seeds. And then there was a little piston in here. It would drive this thing up or down, okay? So this made a lot of noise. And again, I had software that would control that. It would send a little pulse of electricity from the, probably the parallel port of the computer, and it would make this thing go <laughs> But that's gonna make a lot of noise. This is metal on metal. And also, it's a, it's a little electromechanical device, this little sort of piston or solenoid, I guess is what it was, 
Um, it's gonna make a lot of noise. Like what? There goes that. And these birds are, by definition, flighty. They're little songbirds. I have to teach the birds that that's a good thing. That's not easy. So how do you do that? Well, the first thing you have to do is you take the animal and you put it in a, in, a, in, in the box, or uh, typically this is in some kind of experimental chamber, like I'm talking about here. And you have to get the animal, first of all, to approach this, to approach the feeder. How the hell am I going to do that? Well, successive approximations. What you do is you shape through successive approximations. The closer the at first the animal's just going to be flying around all over the place. How am I going to get him just to even come here in the first place? I'm just going to put food all around him. And he's hungry, by the way. He hasn't eaten since last night. He wakes up. Um, you take the bird's food away at night. They wake, And with little birds like that that weigh 12 or 13 grams, they're hungry if they haven't eaten all night. You put them in the, in the cage. They fly around. They're immediately looking for food. You put some food on them. Right? One thing that's often done with, with rats when you want to get them to push a bar, you know how you do that? Because they don't normally just push bars. You put peanut butter all over the bar. They start just, no, they love that, and they start, they're gonna, then they push the bar. In this case, i got to get it here, and then less and less food around here, but he starts hanging around here. And when he does that, then I have a little button. Well, you used to use a button now, but in this case, now you'd use a, I'd use a space bar on the computer, and I would push that, and it would operate the feeder. And the first time, the bird would just fly away. But I'd leave the feeder open, like, activated, and it would fly. There's a little light in there, too. It was like you had to learn how to do electronics and stuff, too, back then, back in the good old days. Well, okay, not really so much me. I didn't build that. That was a shop that we had built. But anyway, eventually it flies back and sees food and eats. So now I've taught the bird that it's supposed to spend time it, the food comes from here, but that's all, I'm only partway there. Now I have to train it to peck at the blotches of light on the computer. Little squares about this size would show up on a black background. In the wild, they don't just naturally peck at squares of light. <coughs> How do I get it to do that? Again, the closer... It, now that it's learned what this means, now I can control its behavior. That, the chujing sound... Now I can get it to do, if I'm halfway decent at it, I can get it to do anything. So I put a stimulus on the screen, and then I just wait. And the closer the bird gets to the stimulus, the more likely it is to get a reinforcer. It gets some food. And then it gets close, and then you watch, and then it gets, it gets its beat closer and closer, and then one time it actually touches the thing, and then it's like, well, I won. Now the bird has learned to touch the screen with its, with its beak, and then it packs and gets food, packs and gets food. If it doesn't learn that, we used to tape a sunflower seed to the screen, and the bird would see a sunflower seed and peck at it. And of course, that would operate the feeder, no problem. One of the things the bird's working for is not just the food itself, but you've actually taught the animal through classical conditioning, basically, that the clicking noise from the feeder is a reinforcer, because it's a CS that predicts the U.S., which is food. So the bird will actually work for the clicking noise. Right? This is the same way you train a dog to, to poop outside. Once it does that, you give it food, right? You give it a, you give it a, can, give it a cookie. Not a candy. You might give it a candy. You'd be, that'd be weird. 
Watch dogs eat candies like a hard candy. <laughs> or even better, like a piece of really chewy fudge or something. Like, they have no idea how to eat something like that, right? It's kind of funny. Dogs will, of course, eat anything, so it's not really a problem. As you know, dogs will vomit and eat it. So they look and go, no, oh, and all you can eat buffet. So dogs are like that. So they'll work for the feeder clip. And your dog will eventually work for good boy. Right? Your dog will just do that. If you're smart, you don't give the dog a cookie every time it pees outside. You might do it now and then. But what do you do? You've paired good boy with giving it a cookie, have you? And then it works for good boy. Right? So they're secondary reinforcers. They're actually, they actually have no biological value. They aren't food. They aren't water. They aren't access to mates. In fact, that's the, 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 the crux of behavior modification that we use in clinical situations. Right? So in clinical situations with, with, with BMOD stuff, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're basically using shaping through successive approximations and secondary reinforcers to change someone's behavior. Right? And it's surprisingly easy to do if you really stick to it. The hardest part of training a dog or a child right, is sticking to it. It's sticking to the reinforcement schedule. That's hard to do. But I mean, behavior modification, people working with autistic kids have had great success using reinforcement. And you start out by, you do this just like you would do with rats or pigeons. You start out by, by, by giving them a spoonful of ice cream or a, or a handful of M&Ms. But the whole time you do that, you pair that with with a smile, or with, a, or with looking at them in the eye, or with just a hug, or something like that. And eventually they'll work for a smile, <clears throat> right? Which, for a lot of autistic people, is hard because they don't recognize that that's a social cue. Um, most kids recognize that right away. So you're actually teaching someone to behave the way normal people behave. Yes, I said normal. Really cool. So a lot of these rules can be taken and used out in the field, out in the in a, in a clinical situation, which is great. It's pretty successful. So that's how you get an animal to do this. So you, instead of doing the thing with the puzzle boxes, you're in control. You're watching what the animal does. And you, there are people, by the way, this is almost, there are people that can do this and people that can't. There's like nobody in the middle. Some people are really good at it, and other people aren't. And the, one of the things that happens is, again, just like with, with behavior modification, you have to stick with it. You can't make a mistake. You can't after the animal has like done the right thing and actually gone all the way up to the feeder or has pushed the bar and operated the feeder. You now can never again reinforce it for anything else because that just changes everything. And it has the law of effect, by going up the firm bike would say that. And that's where you might have a mistake. You might, you might start getting like, oh, it hasn't re responded in five minutes. Maybe I'll just, if it gets a little closer, I'll give him something. Oh, no, now you just screwed up. Right? And that's what ends up happening. And that happens, again, you tell your kids, you get, 
you can watch, you can play uh, play Halo if you do home, you do finish your homework. And then they don't finish their homework. You go, ah, you can play anyway. You can't do that. It's going to screw the kid up. Right? It's the hard part about being a parent, actually. It's trying to be consistent. Because you really do have to be consistent. The nice thing you can do with a human is you can say, okay, this one time, but this, it's this, that still doesn't work that well. So this, some people are just not very good at this, and some people are amazing. We had a guy in our lab, Rick, who was incredible at it. Uh, I'm pretty good at it. Um, I've also seen people that would spend, and then sometimes there's individual differences. I had a, a chickadee, uh, sorry, a junco. It took me six weeks to train it to peck at a screen. Six freaking weeks. See, normally with a rat, you'd go, well, let's order more rats. But you've got to go catch those things. You've got to go in the, in the wild and catch animals. It's different. Okay, let's talk with Skinner. There he is. Doesn't he look like a nice man? He's a nice old man. And apparently he was a really nice guy. I know a guy who did his PhD with Skinner. He said he was just super, a super nice guy. So Skinner termed, coined the phrase rather, operant conditioning. He said operant conditioning, that's when the animal operates on its environment. Remember, in classical conditioning, what she called respondent conditioning, that's where the environment is operating on the animal, right? The CSUS pairing. The animal's behavior is inconsequential to, to, to what happens in the experiment, right? With CSUS, it's like light shock, light shock, light shock. You're, you're measuring the animal's behavior, but its behavior doesn't change the contingencies, doesn't change anything. Whereas with this kind of stuff we're talking about today and for the next couple of weeks, Operant conditioning, the animal is operating on its environment. It's doing something to get something. So he called Pavlovian conditioning respondent conditioning. And Skinner was of the belief that most behavior, most animal behavior, including human behavior, was not Pavlovian or respondent conditioning. Most of it was operant. I don't know if that's true or not. It's what we might call voluntary behavior. Though Skinner certainly wasn't much on free will. He pioneered a couple of really important things. One of the important things he pioneered was the use of what are called free operants. This is the animal is free to do what it wants. And you measure how many it does. So... And eventually, and it uses response rate. Then I, Skinner doesn't care how the pigeon uh, depresses the key light. You'll hear me call these things keys. They aren't actually keys, but that's just a term. And it's, just, it's a circle of light. It's about the size of a loony, and it's in a Skinner box. The animal's free to do whatever it wants, but it has to push that thing to get food. Typically, what they do is they all peck. Typically, what rats do is they all push a bar with with with, with uh, one of their uh, legs, or they, sometimes some rats will use their nose. Okay. And the nice thing is, what we have is we now have what's called response rate. We can take a look at the number of responses per unit time. We have a a measure of learning. And unlike Pavlovian stuff, we're not going to care a great deal about acquisition. We're going to care about behavior once the association 
has been once what Skinner and, and, and Thorndike and those, those guys would say that the stimulus response, well, the stimulus is the, uh, is the three-term contingency, so I'll, I'll wait before I get there. Let's just say SR. There's a stimulus, which is the bar, and the response, which is the pushing the, uh, the bar, for example. So he invented this, unlike the, the puzzle box, he invented the Skinner box. Now, he didn't call it a Skinner box, called it an opera box. He was a very humble guy. People called it, and still do, call it a Skinner box. Like, in, in honor of him, he never, ever called it a Skinner box. He was a really humble guy. Um, which I think is cool. It used to be, in fact, remember I, I was sort of joking with said I was like, you had to do electronics. Well, it used to be back in the day, when you, like in the, in the 50s and 60s and the 40s and stuff, when you would do a PhD in experimental psychology working with animals, you did have to learn how to do electronics. Because you had to build your own equipment. That was a standard thing. Like, you just did that. And you can see what's going on here. This is a rat Skinner box. Okay, there's a, is that a rat? I wonder, is that a pigeon when I can't? Actually, it might be for a pigeon. Yeah, it is, because there's the key light there. There's food here, okay? That's a feeder. You put little food pellets in here. They go down this little tube. Now, what do we have here? This is all the stuff, this is the programming. This now is all done on a computer. But these are these relay racks running 28 volt DC and these little snap leads. So you. You, ha you do have to, 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 to program this thing, you have to actually know a little bit about electronics. Because you have to say, okay, when this happens, then this ha then this runs this, that's a timer, for example. And that's a stepper motor. And that's just a relay. What else do we have here? Oh, it looks like a printer. It's not a printer. It's, it's, it's just the responses. There's a pen, and this paper runs along, and every time there's a response, the pen moves. Now, why would you want that? Well, first of all, because we didn't have computers that would record the data, but you now get this roll of paper out, and it actually shows you, because it's moving, and the pen's just sitting there. And then it gets to the top, and it's, it's over. So you, you get time along this axis, and number of responses along this axis. It's actually really easy to, to, to read these things. And you know, the funny thing is, to this day, you will see, it used to be in articles, that's what you'd see. The, it's called a cumul cumulative recorder. Um, you still see people present stuff like that, even though no one has cumulative recorders anymore, they all have computers to do it. You will, it'll still look like that in a, in, a, in a paper, because that's just the tradition. It's always been like that. And this is a shock generator. Um, so I had to learn actually how to use these because I TA'd a learning lab in 1988 and even though it was almost all computers by then, the guy who was running this course at U of T thought it was 1968. And you can't really get hurt using them, but you can if you wire things wrong. And I remember once I was wiring something up and then it was like a zap and a flash of sparks and then smoke. I said, okay, I'm done for today. Took it up some students' experiment. I said, no, I'm leaving. What happens in here is this allows the researcher to walk away with Thorndike's equipment. You've got to stand there all damn day with this because this is a computer program before a computer. That's what is all going on here. And instead of lines of code, you've got wires hooking things up and you've got, uh, you've got if then uh, statements, you've got loops, the whole thing. Like, it's exactly like a computer. It's exactly the same logic. 
So now you can walk away. Or you could set up, you could run 10 boxes at once. At um, the Advanced Facility for Avian Research in, in at Western, they have a room that has like 15 chambers they can put birds in. And they all have little screens you can watch the bird, uh, the whole thing. Again, it's not relay racks anymore now, it's all computer programming. It's quite cool. Um, the dependent variable can easily, easily be measured and compared across species. The dependent variable is response rate on the cumulative record. It's very easy to read. So there's a couple examples. Uh, there's, a, there's one for a pigeon right there. That's a key light right there, right there. That is a white carnal pigeon. It is harder to teach people to handle pigeons than it is to teach them to handle rats. Once people get over, ooh, it's a rat, and they realize it's actually a quite a nice little thing, and it's like a dog or a cat, no problem, because they weigh 200 grams, so you pick them up. This thing weighs maybe a kilo, and he's strong. And when you open up his cage to take him out, he wants to, he can fly. And I always, I remember teaching, I, I remember teaching Dwayne, because he worked in my lab, uh, teach, in, in, in uh, Newfoundland. And a couple other guys teach them how to use, it's like, no, just show who's boss, put your hand in, grab him, I'll hurt him. No, you won't. Oh, you want to know how you weigh, no, you know how you weigh a rat? It's easy. You put him in a, there's like a bowl on a like, scale. How do you weigh a pigeon? He's not going to just sit there while you weigh him. You get a juice container, like a Tupperware juice container, and you put them in head first. And then they're caught in there head first, and their, their wings are folded so they can't, and they're upside down. You win, you take them out. First time you see it, it's a little weird. They just don't seem to care. They don't fight you, so it's okay. Pigeons also, they, they, we had a lot of fun. I remember back when I was a postdoc in Bill Roberts' lab, and we had one pigeon, number 103, or as we called him, Mr. Poopy Pants, because he crapped a lot. And I remember, we, <laughs> these are things you probably shouldn't do, but I'm gonna, I did it anyway. Me and Mike, who was one of the undergrad students, we used to chase each other around with this pigeon. Want to get that? Can I have the pigeon shit on you? Ah, uh, science. This is uh, this one's for a rat. You can see the bar here. It's hard to see, but there it is. <clears throat> and you can see the um, these bars here. That's so you can electrify the floor. So you can zap the end. You open up this, uh, and that's the the sawdust in there. And you can clear out the rat shit and the piss. Right. Same thing here. You just clear that out. So they're actually pretty amazing. Uh, you can actually buy them. Uh, the Gerbrands company, if you look at the, at the back of, of any issue of uh, JEP Animal, um, I'm sorry if they've changed the name, but whatever, uh, there'll be ads for these things. They're very expensive because there's not a huge market for them. A lot of times now people build their own. Right? Like this one here. They had the computer thing. Like we, had a, we had that built at the shop at the University of Toronto. I tried to get people to call it a broadback box. No one would. <laughs> no one would. So they're pretty cool. It's a pretty neat piece of gear. Okay. Now, people criticized the Skinner box. Guthrie and Horton. Guthrie was the first person who really criticized the puzzle box, even though he was doing work on it. Guth Guthrie really was a philosopher. Like a lot of early psychologists, frankly. Um, 
Yeah, of course it's artificial. <laughs> you think? <laughs> of course it's artificial. There is an episode of Lost where people were in Skinnerbox. Remember that one? They're pushing bars to get food. Do you remember that? No. I really lost. I, I, the problem with Lost, did you watch Lost? The problem I had with that show is you go away to get a beer, you come back, it's like, well, I, now I don't know what's going on in the whole series. <laughs> like, you just be confused to hell. So I, I, um, I tried watching it. I tried watching the whole first season twice. And I kept going, I can't follow this. I, I think I'm a pretty bright guy. I don't get what's going on. And then one time I was checking around and went, they're in a giant Skinner box. Like season three. So yeah, of course it's of course it's artificial. And is that a valid criticism or not? Well, on some level, sure. But the thing is, this allows you to test many different species, which is cool. <laughs> Though the two species that are tested most are rats and pigeons. Um, rats because they're cheap and pigeons because they live long. Rats, rats, you can order rats. I've told you guys this. You know, you buy 10, you get one free most times. Um, pigeons live 20 years. When I was a postdoc, a pigeon died. Like, it was something you never saw. We called the university vet. We thought maybe there was some kind of outbreak. You know, bird bola. <laughs> and so we were really concerned, and he comes and he does an autopsy, and he says... Do you know how old this bird is? He said, well, no. He said, you never looked at the leg band, did you? They all have these little ID bands on their legs. And then he said, look, this pigeon, you guys got this pigeon in 1977, and it was 1994. He said, this pigeon's older than some of the students that are handling these pigeons. Yeah, I guess you're right. So it died old age. So pigeons just last a long time. So, you can test a lot of different species, which have been. I mean, it, it's typical to ask pigeons, but a lot of different things have been tested in the Skinner box. There are a lot of real-world applications that have come out of data from Skinner boxes. So, generalizations can be made. I mentioned the stuff about, um, you know, behavior modification work done with, with autistic kids, which, again, follow that stuff because of my son. And it's amazing the stuff with severely autistic kids that can be taught to, to look somebody in the eye and to smile, which is something that they just never used to do. Right? So there are real world applications. There's other real world applications. There's things like classroom situations. You know that kids in school will work for little stamps that have a star on them? They'll do well on tests for that, won't they? A lot of you are nodding, going, yeah, I remember working for those stamps or working for a sticker. The ultimate prize, I got a sticker that's already stuck to something. Right? I write little smart-ass comments typically on people's tests to get A's for that exact same reason. I used to, in fact, when I was in grad school and I was a TA, I had stickers and I would put them on people's uh, assignments and stuff like that. My friend Duncan, um, who's the 
chair of the Department of Newfoundland. He's since died, but what he used to do, he had a, he had a, a stamp, the Purple Turkey. And the best paper got the Purple Turkey Award. And he would stamp it with this uh, 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 Purple Turkey. I don't know why. And people would be like, they'd work for that. That was a thing. When my, when my daughter, a lot of you know Maddie, was younger, uh, a lot younger, like grade two, she didn't like doing homework, like most kids. So we developed, and this is mostly Isabel's work, a point system. She did, finished her homework, she got so many points, and it was kept in a little journal, and when she got enough points, she could cash the points in for valuable prizes. You know, things like McDonald's, or uh, Tim Hortons donuts, things like that. Or, you know, you really saved up, you could get a toy. Right? And it was probably for about a year it was done, and after that, it was never a problem. She did her homework. Right? And that's something that, you know, parents can do easily. You know? And I feel kind of embarrassed that I didn't think of that, that my wife did, because I'm supposed to be the guy who's the expert. I don't know anything. So there's therapeutic applications, there's real world applications. Um, when you look at some of the work with autistic kids, there's been stuff done where kids that wouldn't even interact with their parents. It's pretty severe. Part of that, though, the sort of autistic aloneness thing, it might be overstated some. Uh, when you talk to autistic people, they want to have friends and they want to be around people. They just don't know how to keep friends. They just don't know how it works. And they can't fathom it. So what happens is a lot of times the parents withdraw too. It's not just the kids. But what you do is you reward the kid with something like a spoonful of ice cream. Something the kid likes or some M&Ms or something. And you pair that with something like a smile or a hug. Things parents would normally do to their kids anyway. And you can get a kid, you can take a kid who's completely withdrawn and have the kid become somebody who can with, interact with their parents or sit in a normal classroom and, and, and learn things. Right? So it's pretty amazing. So it's got real-world applications. It's got therapeutic applications. And finally, it's just cool, so who cares? I mean, like, why not just find stuff out? You know, you, you may not find it that interesting that pigeons will peck at lights and do all that stuff and... You know, all the stuff we talked about with classical conditioning, but it's still cool and it's still knowledge. So, I mean, why not? And you never know when it will have an application. You never know when it will. Right? Okay. Questions about that before we talk about the key concepts? Okay. The first key concept here is what's called the discriminative stimulus. And we'll bring up three-turn contingency as well. Because they go together. The discriminative stimulus is the thing that the animals want to respond to, typically. So, the discriminative, and the three-turn contingency, remember in classical conditioning, it's a two-turn contingency. The, the, the two-turn contingency in classical conditioning is CSUS. In operant conditioning, it's 
discriminative stimulus, which strangely enough is called SD, not DS. I don't know why. And then the response, and then the reinforcement. So light comes on, so the, animal, the bird sees the, the, the key light, it pecks at the key light, and then it gets food. It's a three-term contingency. so far. That makes sense? Three-term three contingency? Okay. Acquisition. Well, the, the, you're going to have, okay, an extinction and spontaneous recovery. What do you think all those are? Exactly the same thing they are in habituation and classical conditioning. This is when the animal is learning the three-term contingency. This is when you stop giving reinforcement. And then the next day, you give it the discriminative stimulus, and it is more likely to peck than it was on the first day. It's spontaneous recovery. These things happen in learning. They happen in learning calculus, and they happen in learning how to peck a key, and they happen in habituation in a nematode. They are just part of how it works. The difference here is we're really interested in acquisition in classical conditioning. In fact, you know, speed of learning, uh, Rascola Wagner model is all about acquisition when you think about it. We really don't care a lot in operant conditioning about the acquisition phase. It's not that interesting to us. We're looking at steady state behavior once the animal has learned the three state conditions. So it's not, not that people look at acquisition, but typically it's not something that. That's something people tend to study is all. Because you're more interested in the steady state behavior. We can do conditioned re uh, Sorry, we also have generalization. What do you think that is? Stimulus generalization. It's exactly what it is in classical conditioning and habituation. You have a light, and let's say it's a certain color. Okay, so uh, so let's say you train it up to a green light. We take a look at it, and again, this would be a steady state behavior. See, the, most of the responses would be to green, then it'd be a little bit less to yellow, and to blue, and to indigo, and to orange. And we actually wouldn't write the colors here. We'd write the, I'm exaggerating on this. There's no way it would be like that broad. Because typically you do it in nanometers, like the wavelength of the light. So it would be various shades of green and blue. It wouldn't just be Roy G. Biff. You at least learn that still, right? Roy G. Biff, Because I've come to the conclusion that they don't actually teach you anything anymore in school. You didn't learn that? I don't remember learning that. You did, though. Did someone in school? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Just that you didn't remember spawning, but if they don't actually teach you, because I'm, I'm starting to be people. I'm starting to sound like a very old guy. We didn't teach you, teach you, I was young, we didn't learn how to. Man, get off my lawn. I don't care about my lawn. I hate my lawn. I hate lawns. I think lawns are stupid. Why do you need a lawn? Why not grow food? Like, seriously. 
We have this, you know, grass is actually technically an invasive species. It doesn't even belong up here. Kentucky bluegrass, where do you think that belongs? Kentucky? Grow wheat. I mean, it'd be a lot of work to grow wheat because you got to harvest it and make flour. That's a bit much, but I don't know. Corn, for Christ's sakes. For something delicious. You're going to have that. Have a cow that you can kill later and eat. I mean, do something. I hate my. I used to hate mowing it more than anything. And it's stupid. It's just that people get all proud of their lawns. I remember a colleague once dropped me off and said, "Boy, you have to do some work in your lawn." I said, "No, I don't. Just don't care. Really, really don't care." Like, how often do you hang out in your front your front yard? No one hangs out in their front yard. Kids don't even play in their own front yard. So why should we have front yards? Just saying. Um, so generalization exactly the same as we see in other kinds of learning. We can get conditioned reinforcement. This is the idea of a secondary reinforcer. Conditioned reinforcement, right? I wonder if I have any conditioned reinforcers on me here. No, I don't have any cash. Hey, even that's conditioned reinforcement. Pay entire money. Actually, it's a great example of the framing heuristic because that's not even money, yet I treat it like it's money. Um, I have a lot of receipts for things that I probably should throw away. Even on a greater level of abstraction, I have access to secondary reinforcers from my debit card. Money has no real value. Whoa, mind blown. No biological value, does it? It has none, except I can exchange it for food and shoes. You know, and shelter and, and access to mates. Well, I've never done that, but you know. <laughs> no, I, I, that's just weird. And I, I think probably most of the people all take PayPal now anyway. But see, the thing is, that's a secondary reinforcer. Money is a secondary reinforcer. It really has no value. Except we've all agreed as a society it has value. So everything works out just fine. Just nobody... As long as everyone doesn't figure out that money really has no value, we'll be fine. Doesn't? Of course not. Yeah, right? Think about it. It has no value. It's like Bitcoin. It has no intrinsic value. There's none. Nope. You can exchange it for things that have intrinsic value. Yeah. Yeah. So again, smarties have more value. They have more intrinsic value. But I can buy more smarties. Money, see? I mean, but it is a secondary reinforcer. Primary reinforcer, food, shelter, water, access to mates. Those, you know, because those are biologically relevant. Money is not biologically relevant, but you can exchange it for things that are biologically relevant. Right? First step in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's right. Yeah. The, 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 the lowest level, right? Yeah. Yep. So when you think about it, most of the stuff you do, when you work, why do you work? Well, I know working is fun. I like my job. It's fun. I wouldn't do it for free. There were many years where it felt like I was doing it for free. Uh, you know, I was being paid. A lot better than it used to be. But I wouldn't do this for free. I used to get paid. I do this so I can get this, these hypothetical numbers put in a computer because I don't even actually get the money 
it just goes into a computer somewhere. And I can exchange access to that for groceries and liquor. Right. <laughs> Actually, usually on Saturday, first the grocery store, then the liquor store. So that's part of it. Look at my history on Foursquare, that's what you see. So, we, a lot of what we do as humans in, you know, enlightened Western industrialized society is we work for this condition reinforcement. That's what Skinner would say. I don't know if I buy that. I'm saying that that's, that there's a compelling argument that can't be made. Right? The pieces of paper, weird plasticky paper that kind of that smell funny and have portraits of, a, of an old lady from England on them have value for some reason. They're secondary reinforcers. I never, anybody carry cash at all anymore? I don't ever have any cash in my pocket. You really do? I carry cash. Yeah. Like, but, uh, the, you don't tell me, but out of curiosity, like, do you have like 100 bucks in your pocket or 10? It's closer to 10 or 100? Uh, it's more than 100. Okay. I carry, I'm, I'm I don't like the bank. Why? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got all my money. It's all, uh, you just look it up right now. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, most people nowadays, because it's just use your bank card anywhere. I don't carry cash. Yeah. I've started carrying cash just because there's been a couple times where the power's gone out. Ah. And you're trying to buy something you actually need, and you're like... Oh, well, if the power goes out a lot of times, the people can't even do the math. That's right. To, 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 yeah. to, to do the math. <laughs> you know, I remember going into Max, and I, I knew that the power was out. Remember that big power outage we had a couple of years ago? The sun was out for, like, all day. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I thought, well, I'm going to go buy... Um, the hell was, oh, hamburger buns, because I have ground beef, and we sell propane. Hey, I'll make hamburgers for dinner. That's easy. But I have no buns. I go in. guy goes, power's out. I said, yeah, I'm just going to get some buns. Well, uh, power's out. I said, uh-huh. Uh, let's see, they cost $2. I have a five. You give me three back. There's no tax on food. Well, power's out. <laughs> so and I've had other occasions where I've actually have gone in and said, okay, I know how much this costs, and we buy something with tax. And it's a, I know the taxes. Here's the money. Well, how do you know what the tax is? I said, well, I know what the Riverdale tax rate is. It's part of being a citizen. <laughs> You're supposed to know things like that, and I can also do math. Okay, can you write down how much was the tax? Because we have to know that. Yeah, you got a pen? That's amazing. At least the guy let me buy something, unlike the hamburger guy going, power's out. So I'll give the guy credit, and at least he knew his limitations. He said, I don't know how much that would be, so can you write that? Good, so I, I took that. Yeah. So it's a good point. But it's so rare. I feel bad, though, like a kid comes to the door, the Boy Scout or whatever, selling apples. You go, you take PayPal? Because I don't have any cash. <laughs> Poor little kid looks at you. I don't know. What's PayPal? And he runs away because he thinks it's probably some sort of molestation. Come on. <laughs> God, that was a weird place to go. I'm sorry. Um, I'm very, very sorry. So, so we work for condition reinforcement. We really do. And it's a little weird when you take us, and in fact, it's almost better if you don't think about stuff like that, that money really has no value, because it makes you realize that it's all an illusion, man. And then people say, well, gold has no value. Actually, gold really has no value either. We just all agree it has value, right? The ancient Egyptians used to pay their taxes in beer. And you think, well, that's stupid. Well, why is it any smarter than... It's actually something consumable. <laughs> it's a real item. 
I'm glad the government doesn't take my money and buy taxes and beer. Yeah, Dan. Uh, the ancient, the ancient uh, old Mexican Mayan viewed the pay in chocolate. Yeah, sure. And at least again, that is consumable. Mm-hmm. Right? Almost makes more sense. <clears throat> um, you can have response chains. So you can have like the animal has to. Unlike the, 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 the Thorndike situation, where the animal actually only has to say, pull in the chain, but it does a whole bunch of stuff, you can set up what's called a response chain, where the animal actually does have to spin around three times, click its heels, say, I wish I was in Kansas, and then pull on the chain. <laughs> that only works with people. Um, because it said, I wish I was in Kansas. You can do response chains with a rat or a pigeon, whatever. So you have to do certain things in certain orders. Okay. All right. Questions about that? So there are, and I talked about, in fact, this literally yesterday in uh, Evolutionary Psych. There are constraints on learning. The Breelands, that's two, that's a, a husband and wife team, they trained with Skinner, Breeland and Breeland. Were training, they, they, instead of becoming academics, they became people that trained animals to do tricks, basically. Uh, and Pid- Skinner did that for fun sometimes. He taught two, pi- two pigeons to play ping pong. Well, what the Breelands did is they would work on like advertising things. So they have like little rat, little little like raccoons in a in a bank store, like storefront. Storefronts used to be kind of cool. There'd be little displays. Not really so much anymore. Um, and one bank wanted them to have a raccoon put money in a piggy bank. I think the notion here is the raccoon looks like a thief because he's got the mask. Right? The idea is he's going to put it. And through successive approximations, and the Breelands are very good at this, they trained the raccoon to do this. But then after a while, the raccoon wouldn't put the wooden nickel in the uh, piggy bank. Instead, it just started taking the, piggy, the, the wooden nickel and washing it. Well, that's weird. So they thought, well, we'll get pigs to do it. That's even cuter. Pigs putting money in piggy banks, huh? Mm-hmm. Again, taught the pigs to do it, shaped through success approximations, it worked out just fine. But after a while, the pigs, pigs stopped doing that. They wouldn't put the money in there. Instead, they, with this, you know, they're like wooden nickels again. They'd, like, root them with their nose, push them around on the, on the ground. But they would never put them in the piggy bank. Now, if you know anything about the way raccoons eat, or the way pigs eat, what they're doing is they're kind of treating the stimulus, which is the, 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 the fake coin, as a food item. Raccoons, when they eat something, tend to rub it. People often say that they wash their food. Pigs root through stuff when they eat. The Breelands called this instinctive drift. And they wrote a book about this in the early 1960s, which is interesting because 
to show you how ingrained the idea of, of what was called equal potentiality, that you could hook any behavior up to any stimulus, the title of their book is The Misbehavior of Organisms. It wasn't the poorly designed experiment. It wasn't called that. It was called The Misbehavior of Organisms. The animals aren't behaving properly. The animals' fault. The animals' fault. Yeah, exactly. So it's crazy, right? Now, this shouldn't surprise us. And I bet, I think I said this yesterday in Evolutionary Psych, if, you, if they had taken a squirrel and trained it to put money in the piggy bank, there'd be no problem. Because squirrels store food. They never thought of using squirrels. I think probably after the whole pig incident, they went, this is stupid, we're not doing this anymore. So suddenly it looks like you can't hook any behavior up to any stimulus, which is what is, you know, that's originally what, what Thorndike Skinner thought. And then this weird idea of auto-shaping, and I've told you about this with classical conditioning, where if you get a key light, and if it's classical conditioning, you turn that on and then give food, eventually they start shaping themselves, it seems. They peck at the key. And this was actually two people at University, uh, McMaster University of Hamilton, Brown and Jenkins, in 68. People, the first thing people said was, I bet it's just superstitious behavior. There's nothing else to do in there. It's dark. Right? Because when you do stuff with pigeons, uh, or most birds, not with the chickadees, we didn't do that, but usually with, with pigeons, it's dark. The only thing on there is the light. What are they going to behave towards? Well, that. It's the only thing they can see. Maybe it's superstitious behavior. But Jenkins and Moore, in 73, found that the form of the response they give depends on the, on, on the I guess you still should call it a U.S., the U.S. reinforcer. Why? Well, how do they do that? The high-speed camera, and either give them food or water. And when you give them food, they pack straight ahead with their beak open a little bit, which is how they eat. When you give them water, they peck in a swipe up like that, which is how they drink water. So they are treating the stimulus as kind of a substitute, sort of a substitute for the reinforcer, or the in the case of U.S. Um, I told you about Ed Wasserman's chicks the other day. Uh, and what, the idea that they will actually nuzzle up to a light that predicts, or a speaker that predicts heat, just like they nuzzle up to their mother. Sometimes you will see Ed Wasserman comment on things on my Facebook page, as we are Facebook friends. He's getting a big award this year at the conference I go to, so... Good on him. Uh, Bill Timberlake has an interesting idea, or came up with an interesting idea, but still has it. <laughs> came up with it quite a while ago, maybe 20 odd years ago, 30 odd years ago. Um, the idea of a behavior system approach. So looking at ethology and animal behavior, remember we talked about um, jungle fowl and dust bathing, that kind of idea where there's different systems that get activated. And then the animal is going to behave is more likely to behave in a certain way that, that goes along with the system that's activated. So if it's the feeding system, it's going to behave with feeding-type behavior, pecking. 
if it's the thirst, the drinking system, it's going to be more likely to behave in a using a, using that kind of behavior, drinking like behavior. It's kind of putting ethology, sort of classical ethology, Conrad Lorenz kind of stuff, stuff we if you guys took you guys that took animal behavior with me last year, that kind of stuff is putting that together with conditioning stuff, which I kind of like. I'm kind of biased. Bill Timberlake really helped me on my first. Uh, I guess my first solo publication. He was really, really helpful. He was the editor of a journal, and he was really, really nice to me. So uh, I don't think people often mention this, but I, th- I think his his approach there was great, and he was just a nice guy. So I would never be as nice as he was to like a young graduate student writing his own first solo publication. I'd be like, "Well, that sucked." <laughs> Revise and resubmit, or probably find another journal. He was like so totally cool to me. So I like pointing that out because when people are cool, they should be. People don't get. You only usually hear when people are dicks, and he wasn't. He don't hear when they're cool. It's like you know, it's like when you're in a restaurant, someone gives you good service. You, you don't just tip them. You say you did a really good job. I think telling someone that is a good thing. Only people do that enough. You probably didn't think I'm that positive a person like that, did you? But I am. I really am. I'm cynical as hell, but I'm also, I think, give, give credit where due. All right. Now, you could give reinforcement after every behavior you're interested in. In fact, that's how I've been talking so far, right? Every time the animal pecks a key, it gets... Food. Every time the animal pushes a bar, it gets food. That's called continuous reinforcement, or CRF. This uh, is very rarely used, actually, experimentally. It's also very rarely used clinically, or even uh, in sort of daily life, when you think about it. I get paid on the 15th and the last day of each month. I don't get paid after every single class. I don't walk out of here and Rick Myers hands me a check. That would be weird. Or even think about it, even continuous reinforcement. The president of the university should stand there throwing the loonies at it every couple of seconds. Well, I don't make a dollar a second, so that wouldn't be quite right. So I don't get continuous reinforcement, do I? And in fact, it's rarely used, and part of, part of that is because it, doesn't, it also doesn't maintain behavior very well. Let's think about this. Let's pretend that actually that is how I was paid. That we were living in some sort of weird 1920s Germany. The price of bread kept going up, but a wheelbarrow full of money to go buy bread. So let's, no, let's just pretend I am paid after each class. That's the closest thing we could have to continuous reinforcement. I wonder what I get paid for close. Now I'm just curious. Uh, let's see. I'm, this is more for my own. I'm not going to tell you what it would be. You can you can work it out yourself. My salary is a matter of public record for some reason. Uh, let's see. So there's every classes. There's uh, 13 weeks. That's 26 classes, and I teach three this term. So divide that by three, and then we divide that by. Did I say three? Oh, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> so more than I thought. So let's say I walk out of class and Rick Myers is there and he gives me a check. 
That's what the university president's new job is. He doesn't do any administrative. He just hands out checks. And <laughs> okay. So it's a new way to pay. So you walk into class and it's goes, good job, Dave. Here's your, here's your check. What if one day Rick didn't show up because, I don't know, he's sick? Or, or he had to be at another class? Oh, um. Yeah. What am I going to think? Because I'm getting paid every day after each class. Now, Skinner would hate me saying what would anybody think because Skinner didn't, isn't into any total mental events. But I'm going to think, whoa, the contingencies have changed. I guess I don't get paid anymore. Right? I'm going to say, screw it, I quit. You're not going to pay me? I'm not doing this for the hell of it. I remember teachers used to always say, I'm not just doing this for the good of my health. Teachers would always say that. Teacher said that once, and I was like grade four, and I said, well, really, technically you are, because you get money, and then you can exchange it for food. I was such a smart-ass kid. And that really helps your health. Go to the office. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in the office. And then when I was in Newfoundland, the head of, the, of, the, of that campus of the university was called the principal, and I'd, get, I'd have to go down to the principal's office sometimes, and I'd get nervous. Like, I'd really get it, and I'd be like, oh, I got to the principal's office. And he was a friend of mine. We went drinking on Friday afternoons together, but I got to the principal's office. Think about it with a rat, right? Rats pushing a bar, getting food after each time. What if the machine breaks? And those things break. Um, and a food pellet doesn't come down. Well, every, what's the animal expect? Every time I push the button, food comes. If I, don't put, if I push it once in food, I guess things have changed. On the other hand, what if I gave it to the rat every, oh, I don't know, 20 times? And one time it doesn't, maybe 21, it goes up to 21. Is the rat going to still keep pressing? Yeah, because it's like, oh, I must have miscounted. Right? Right? <coughs> so, partial reinforcement or giving a little bit of re- uh, giving reinforcement not after every response maintains behavior a lot better and is way more existent to extinction. There's something called the partial reinforcement extinction effect. That's what that's called. That partial reinforcement is much more resistant to extinction. And it's funny, before the idea of any animal cognition or any looking at internal mental events, people went nuts trying to explain why this happened. And if you think about it with a cognitive bent at all, you can just explain it like half a second yourself. But so the book's going to go nuts on the partial reinforcement extinction effect. Read it, know it, but realize that no one really cares anymore. Right. And on that note, that means for today. To come home to share a place with Mary Jane. 
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.